0: We had a couple of questions come in by email this week that I wanted to put to Michael before we get started here. But before I do that, one of the emails was from Ben. And uh, Ben, do you want to come in and ask your question?
1: The question I have is, um, <laughs> you know, one thing that, I, that uh, really caught my attention when I read um, Romano Mahoshi, who am I, was he experienced, he described our essential state of self as existence, consciousness, and bliss. And I guess that surprised, but uh, what kind of stood out from that definition was I didn't see the four letter word love. So um, that being left out was uh, kind of caught my attention. So that's why I. I uh, emailed a question, I floated the question, is consciousness essentially the same thing as, is it synonymous as love? Uh,
2: yes, it is. Um, the usual description of Brahman is sat-chit-ananda. Sat means being, it implies pure being. Chit is pure awareness, and ananda is pure, infinite happiness. Another, uh, another parallel definition that is sometimes given is asti bhati priyam. Asti means being, so it's the same as sat. Bhati means uh, shining, so it's the same as chit. But what makes itself known uh, and what illumines all other things. And the other term is priyam, which means love, because happiness and love are inseparable. In the first paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan says the, the first sentence is quite a long sentence, but it's very, very deep in meaning. He he gives a, he gives a number of reasons here. He starts by saying since all sentient beings want or like to be always happy without what is called misery, that's the first reason. Second reason is since for everyone, the greatest love is only for oneself. And the third reason is since happiness alone is the cause for love. Um, what we have to infer from this that is firstly, we all want to be happy. Uh, and at the same time, we all have greatest love for ourselves, whatever else we may love, we love it. Our love for it cannot be greater than our love for ourselves. For example, supposing I I love a particular person or a particular experience or a particular hobby or whatever it may be. I love it because it makes me happy. So it's because of my love for myself that I love that person or thing. And the third reason is very, very important, since happiness alone is the cause for love. That is, we love only those things, that we believe will contribute to our happiness. If we think something is going to detract from our happiness, is going to obstruct our happiness, we don't like it. So happiness is the cause for love. If we think of it deeply, think about it deeply, happiness is the cause for love and love is the cause for happiness supposing we we have a desire for something and we get that thing why do we why does getting that thing make us happy it's because it satisfies our desire for that so but just like um, happiness is the cause for love love is the cause for happiness they the two are inseparable in um in the world of duality when we're looking outwards happiness and love seem to be two different things, each one causing the other. But when we look deep within, we see happiness and love are one and the same. So I'll just complete this, this sentence. So these are three reasons. So from this we have to infer, since we all like to be happy and we have greatest love for ourselves and happiness alone is the cause for love, why do we love ourselves? Because We are self-happiness. That is the inference Bhagavan wants us to draw from this. And he goes on to uh, say this more explicitly in the main clause of the sentence. So he goes on to say, in order to attain that happiness, which is one's own nature. So he's confirming the conclusion here. But the reason he gave those first three clauses is to point out that happiness is our own nature. And he then gives another reason. Why happiness is our own nature? Because he says, in order to experience that happiness, which is one's own nature, which one experiences daily in sleep, sleep here means dreamless sleep, which is devoid of mind. In sleep, sleep is devoid of mind. Because it's devoid of mind, it's devoid of everything else. We don't experience anything in sleep other than ourself. So since we are happy in sleep, since we experience happiness in sleep, and since we alone exist there and we don't experience anything other than ourselves, the, again, that's another reason for us to conclude that happiness is our real nature. So, in, uh, in order to attain that ha- obtain that happiness, which is one's own nature, which one experiences daily in dreamless sleep, which is devoid of mind, oneself knowing oneself is necessary. So that's the first sentence. And then the second sentence is, for that, Jnana Vichara, Jnana Vichara means awareness investigation, called Who Am I? Alone is the principal means. So, in this first sentence, he, he's explicitly saying, he's explicitly arguing that happiness is our real nature. If we consider the arguments he gives here carefully, we can also infer that love is our own nature. We love to be happy. Because we love ourselves. And we love ourselves because we ourselves are not only happiness, but also love. So love and happiness are inseparable. So in the term Sachid Ananda, the ananda aspect, it explicitly means happiness, it implicitly means love. So love is our own real nature. We cannot we cannot separate ourselves from love. But and loving happiness is not wrong. The problem is how love for happiness uh, leads to or, or can give rise to wrong things, is that instead of being aware of ourselves as we actually are, which is the one infinite whole, so in loving ourselves, we are loving everything. When we rise as ego, we limit ourselves as the extent of this body. So our our self-love, which is our real nature gets limited as love for this little person we take ourselves to be. So because I love Michael so much, I'm more concerned about the interests of Michael than I am about other people. So this is how selfishness arises. And from selfishness arises greed and envy, and all the vices arise out of this. They all arise out of self-love, but they arise out of self-love because we have limited ourselves as ego. If we experience ourselves as we actually are, which is the one infinite whole, there's no selfishness there. We, we, We are not concerned just about one little person. We have love for all. So love is our real nature. Does, does that adequately answer your question, Bin? <coughs> or do you want to ask anything oh, further yeah, uh, on that? Yes, um, yes, Michael,
1: that, um, that, uh, that helped a lot.
2: Okay, okay. So we need Thank to have you. no doubt about that. That one says we, we all have greatest love for ourselves. So that means oh. that what he's implying there is that love, not only is happiness our real nature, love is our real nature. And so, what is the way to know ourselves as we actually are? Love is the way. That is without bhakti. That's why Bhagavan often said, Bhakti is the mother of jnana. Without love, we cannot, uh, we can never make progress on this path. We make progress to the extent to which we have true love, not love for the person we take ourselves to be, but love for the reality of ourselves. What is the reality of ourselves? It's just that fundamental awareness i am our own being that is what we actually are so we must have love for our own being we must have love to be as we actually are that love is the driving force on this but um in this uh, spiritual path
1: so can can that be extended to say that basically love for everything that around us everything that we see cuz everything is
2: Everything is so, Yes, so but we have to be careful here. So long as we see everything, so long as we see many things, we experience ourselves as one thing. So we've limited ourselves as I am this body. So this is me. Everything else is something other than me. So whatever love we have for those other things is imperfect because we are seeing them as other than ourselves. In order to have perfect love for everything... We must know ourselves as we actually are. When we know ourselves as we actually are, since we, since what we actually are is the one infinite whole, there is nothing other than ourselves. This is why we saw in Bhagavan. Bhagavan had love for everyone, for the good people, the bad people, for um, whatever people's um, religion or nationality or caste or. Um, beliefs, or whatever it is, Bhagavan's love was equal. Whatever species they are, whether they're human, or monkeys, or cows, or dogs, or scorpions, or snakes, or hornets, whatever they are, Bhagavan's love is equal to all, equal for all. Why? Because he loves all as himself. Why? Because he knows all as himself. He doesn't see anything as other than himself. So, We can know Bhagavan's state only when we merge in that state ourselves. The truth is Bhagavan's state is a state of perfect oneness. Bhagavan isn't aware of any other. He's not aware of any multiplicity. But what we are seeing as this world of multiplicity, so many different individuals and objects and so on, he is seeing as himself. People imagine Mr. Mean. Oh, Bhagavan sees himself as a tree and as a car and as a mountain, as a uh, uh, road. No, he sees himself as he actually is. What we see as all these multiple things, he sees as the one thing. I am. So it's like saying, um, supposing we so, so are it's
1: not experiencing itself. Sorry. In other words, so the other way to put it is like love experiencing itself, because yes, he sees yes, everything else himself. Yes.
2: There's a fundamental mistake, for example, that Christian theologians and most theologians, most theologians who take God to be other than themselves, they all say love is always for another. That is a fundamental fallacy. Because isn't it obvious to all of us, but yes, we do love other things. We love our husband or our wife, our parents, our children. We love so many things. But what is the greatest love we have? We have love for ourselves. So love doesn't, the perfect love is not the state where one thing is loving another thing. It's the state where there's only one thing loving itself. Self-love is the highest love. It's the pure love. It's the perfect love.
1: Okay, well, that that's how it is. It's, uh, it's, I must admit that it's, it's pretty deep. It's actually it, very deep into, into the. Bhag, uh, this, Bhagavan's this, this, teachings are extremely uh, deep. It's definitely very deep, but that helped. Yeah, yeah. Thank, um, thank, um, thank, you, Michael.
2: Right, Bhagavan's teachings—they seem very simple on the surface. They are very simple, but we shouldn't be—we shouldn't be deceived by their simplicity. Though they are very simple, they are also extremely deep. So the more, we, the more we think deeply about what he has taught us, and most importantly, the more we put it into practice deeply, the more we will recognize the, the, the depth and subtlety of his teachings. So I, I was just saying one other thing, just to illustrate what I was saying about Bhagavan, In a certain sense, we can say Bhagavan sees this world as himself, but that means he's not seeing the world as we are seeing it because we are seeing it as many things. He sees it as himself. He himself is one thing. So he's not seeing the multiplicity. He's seeing the underlying unity. Supposing we are walking along a path uh, in the dim light of dusk with Bhagavan, we see a, a... what seems to us to be a snake, Bhagavan assures us, no, it's just a rope. So we can say metaphorically, but Bhagavan is seeing the snake as a rope. We are seeing the rope as a snake. Bhagavan is seeing the snake as a rope. But what is it actually? It's actually just a rope. So when we say we are seeing it as a, we we are seeing the rope as a snake, that means we are. We are seeing the rope, but we're not seeing it as a rope. We're seeing it as a snake. When it is said that Bhagavan is seeing the snake as a rope, what does that mean? That means he's seeing the rope as it is. He's not seeing the snake at all. What we see as a snake is what he sees as a rope. Likewise, what we see as this world of multiplicity, Bhagavan sees as the one infinite and indivisible Satchitananda. He's himself, nothing other than himself. So we, we cannot adequately understand Bhagavan's state so long as we are seeing multiplicity. So in order to understand Bhagavan correctly, we need to look deep within ourselves and thereby sink deep within ourselves and lose ourselves lose this separate existence, this ego, losing the reality of ourself in that pure awareness that we actually are, in that pure, infinite, indivisible, and that we actually are. Only when we experience ourself as Bhagavan will we know, will we understand Bhagavan's view. And what, is the, what is the means to know to, to know ourself as Bhagavan we must have all-consuming love. Why must we have all-consuming love? Because in order to do so, we must be ready to surrender ourselves completely. So why should we surrender <coughs> ourselves? Th- that is, we, we can never surrender ourselves except by love. Love is the only <coughs> means. Because we, we would, except for love, we will never be willing to give up ourselves. So only by having all-consuming love for him Will we be willing to surrender ourselves to him, and only when we surrender ourselves to him can we lose ourselves in him, become one with him? Well we're always one with him but but lose the seeming separation from him and and one final thing here um, in arunachal Aksram, I have 108 verses. There are so many beautiful prayers, but there's one prayer which is particularly apt, particularly appropriate to your question. In that verse, Bhagavan sings, "Ambuvi Lali Amburu Arunachala." That means, uh, "Like ice in water, melt me as love in you, the form of love." Uh, or graciously or lovingly melt me as love in you, the form of love. That's a very beautiful analogy. That is, the whole ocean is water. Even the iceberg that's floating in the ocean is water. But it seems to be separate from the ocean because it's frozen. It's become solidified. Likewise, our real nature is love. But when we rise as ego we are like the iceberg, we've solidified ourselves into a hard, we, we, we've become cold-hearted, hard-hearted. So we need to melt completely in his love. We need to melt as love in him, a form of love. So this path of self-investigation is the true path of love, true path of bhakti. Only by losing ourselves in love, can we know ourselves as we actually are? Because what we actually are is love, infinite love. Thank you, Michael. Uh, All thanks to Bhagavan, because I'm just pointing out what Bhagavan has taught us. (laughs) Okay,
0: are we ready to move on to the next question? Yes, Uh, um, I think so, yes. Okay, this is from um, Harja Mahal, who lives in India, and she couldn't join us today because of the time difference. But here is her question. Recently, I watched on YouTube an interview of Ramaswamy Pillai. He mentions that self-inquiry is exactly like the effort we make when we try to remember a name we have forgotten or a thing we have misplaced. He also mentions that we should question ourselves as to where was I in deep sleep? Is it the same inquiry as who am I? I also sometimes feel that I don't always have to ask, who am I? To whom does this happen, et cetera, in words. Self-attention just happens sometimes when I'm in the middle of a thought or a perception. It's like when I'm lost in thought, I just remember that I'm lost in thought. Or when I look at something, e.g. a tree, I don't really look at it or imagine somebody looking at it from this side. It's just the quality of looking or what looks that I attend to is that self-attention.
2: Okay. Very Quite a few questions here, so I'll break yes. them up. I'll answer one by one. <clears throat> the first thing is uh, Ramasami Pillai said that self-inquiry is exactly like the effort we make when we <clears throat> try to remember a name we a name we have forgotten or a thing we have misplaced. Um, before I go on to answer this, I'll just, because um, some some people may not know who Ramasami Pillai is. He was a, an old devotee of Bhagavan. He was a very, very good devotee of Bhagavan. Um, He was with Bhagavan, I'm not quite sure when he first came to Bhagavan, I think it was in the Skandashram days. And um, I knew him, he lived up to about, I mean, he was, uh, I think he lived up to about the age of 100. So I knew him in his last um, uh, 10, 15 years of his life. And he was a, a very, very good devotee of Bhagavan. He was a, he was very um, very uh, service-minded. Uh, he was always wanting to be of help and be of service. But um, any of you who have been to Tiruvannamalai, you will know the path from the back of the ashram going up to Skandashram. That path was, um, was uh, all the stones that, on that path. They were all put in place by ramasamy Pillai because he knew Bhagavan used to like to walk on the hill and would occasionally go up to go back to Skandashram. He laid that path to make it a nice path to walk along. So he did such service. And he used to be called a uh, cycle Swami, because um, if anything was needed from the town, he would be the first to volunteer. OK, I'll go and get it. He'd hop on his cycle, he'd go off to the town and he'd fetch it and come back. So he was a, he was a very, very nice person. However, when we regarding what he said about um, this, what his explanation about self-inquiry, I don't think it is actually such a helpful explanation. The reason being, we need to consider if we there are two types of forgetting. Um, sometimes we forget something. And we 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 are not able to remember what it is. Sometimes we so that that's an inability to recall something. We know, we know very uh, we see a person we've seen before. We know we know that person, but we can't remember where we last saw them, or we can't remember their name. So we're trying to remember where did I see this person? What is their name? But we we can't we we are unable to recall. That is one type of forgetfulness. But there's another type of forgetfulness. Supposing I, um, I say to you, I'll call you at two o'clock this afternoon. Then I, I have to remember, I have to hold on to that uh, idea, but i am got to call you at two o'clock. Supposing I become preoccupied with other things, when two o'clock comes, I might forget. So that's a different, that's not an inability to recall. It's an inability that is there. It is a, it is a lack of mindfulness and lack of attentiveness. I, I lose hold of the, the idea, but I need to call you. So there, there's a subtle difference between these two, um, these two types of memory. Supposing I, 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 I promised you that I would call you at two o'clock. But I'm afraid but because I know I've got many other things to do and other things to attend to. I may, in the midst of it, I may forget. So I set my alarm uh, for two o'clock. As soon as my alarm goes off, I remember, oh, I, I don't have any difficulty recalling. As soon as the alarm goes, I remember, oh, I've got to call you. So the, it's not that I'm unable to recall. It's just that... I'm unable to hold on to the remembrance that I need to call you. So that there's a subtle difference. Supposing the alarm rings at two o'clock and I think, oh, I was supposed to do something at two o'clock. I can't remember what I, what was I supposed to do at two o'clock? That is a different type of uh, forgetfulness. There we are. We are not unable to recall. Yes, I set my alarm for something. It must have been to remind me of something, but I can't for the life of me remember what I was, what, what, why I set this alarm? What I was supposed to do at two o'clock? So there's a difference between these two types of forgetfulness. It it, there, it is often said, but we have forgotten our real nature. And and but we and Bowen in some in some places talks about describes the practice of self investigation as self remembrance. For example, in there's a very nice sentence in the. 11th paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan says, if one holds on to uninterrupted self-remembrance, surupasmarana, until one attains one's real nature, that alone is sufficient. So when Bhagavan talks there about self-remembrance, what does he mean by self-remembrance? He doesn't mean that we have to rack, rack our brain is, oh, who am I? I've forgotten who I am. Not like that. We just have to hold on to, we have to be s- their self-remembrance means self-attentiveness we have to hold on to the memory of ourselves, or we have to hold on to that that self-awareness but <clears> we never we never actually forget ourselves. we may seem to have forgotten what we are but we never forget that we are we're always aware i am so we don't have to we don't have it it's not like um, I've forgotten his name. What is his name? I can't. I've seen him somewhere before, but what is his name? It's not like that. Or, or where did I keep my, where did I keep my pen or my glasses or whatever it is? It's not. It's not a an inability to recall. It, it, it the forgetfulness that we have of ourselves is because we are so interested in, in knowing other things and experiencing other things. We take our own existence for granted, so we don't attend to our own being. We, we, we just take it for granted. We attend to so many other things. So when Bhagavan talks about self-remembrance, it's not like we're trying to remember something that we've forgotten. It's, tr- it's more that we are trying to hold on to the, the, that self-remembrance, that self-attentiveness, that uh, awareness of ourselves. So it's more like, um, I promised you I will call you at two o'clock. So I have to hold on to that thought that I must call you at two o'clock. But if I get too engrossed in other things, I'll surely forget. So there's a, there's a, a subtle but very important distinction between these two types of forgetfulness so when bhagavan talks about self remembrance it's not that we're struggling to try and remember something that we forgot forgotten because we're always there's never a moment when we're not aware i am but we we generally forget to be attentively self aware we're always self aware but because of our interest in other things, we are attending to other things. And so we neglect this self-awareness. So generally we are negligently self-aware. We need to be attentively self-aware. Being attentively self-aware is what is called self-remembrance. So I think the analogy he gives here is not a very appropriate analogy. It doesn't really, um, It's it's like some people talk about there's one book uh, written by a devotee of Bhagavan, um, not someone who knew Bhagavan, but she came afterwards and she wrote a book called uh, "Hunting the Eye." And people talk about searching for the eye, uh, the quest of the eye, as if it's as if eye is something that we have to go hunting. But one thing we always know clearly is eye. There's never a moment when we don't know eye. As as Muruganar sings in the in the Anupalabi, the sub-refrain of the song Anma Bide. That is the song where Murugana Bank began that song by singing a uh, refrain, which is um, "Aye Ati Sulapum, Anma Bidey, Ati Sulapum. That means ah, extremely easy. Atma ah, extremely easy. Atmavidya means the science of uh, self or the science of self-knowledge. In other words, this path of self-investigation, it's extremely easy. And then in the next verse, he says, um, that's in what's called the Anupalavi, that's the sub-refrain, he says, "Um, uh, but uh, this isn't the exact meaning, but I'm just explaining, but oneself is so very clear, even to the dullest of people, but it, in comparison, uh, uh, an amalaka fruit in the hand is uh, becomes unreal. becomes uh, What what that means is there's if you there's a in 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 India if you want to say something is very very clear and you say it's as clear as an amalaka fruit in the hand. Um, it's, so what Morgan is saying. Even the amalaka fruit in one's, in one's palm is relatively unclear compared to how clearly we know, all know our own existence, our own self. And he then asked Bhagavan to write the verses for that song. So Bhagavan then wrote uh, the, the verses. And in the, um, in the first of the verses, Bhagavan emphasized that though our self, though self, is so very real, This body and world appear as if real. And Bhagavan goes on to, uh, so uh, Bhagavan wrote that song at the request of Murugana in order to make it clear why it is so easy for us to know ourselves if we want to. That is where the love comes in. Why does it seem difficult for us, to us? To hold on to self-attentiveness. Why does it seem difficult for us to know ourselves? Because we still have so much liking for other things. We are not willing to let go of other things. So it's because of our lack of love or uh, uh, our deficiency of love. We may have a little love to know what we are, but we've got greater love to know so many other things and to experience so many other things. So we ourselves are always extremely clear. even as, as Morgan says, even with the dullest of people they know I am. So you you don't you don't need to be a a genius. You don't need to be a great philosopher or a great um, um, mathematician or physicist or academic or something to know I am. <laughs> we all know I am. Even the newborn child doesn't know any language but it's still aware of its own existence. So it may not know the words I am, but it knows the experience I am. We all know. But because of our interest in other things, we overlook it. So um, we shouldn't think of self-inquiry as trying to find the I or to remember something that we've forgotten. I is always shining. Though Bhagavan sometimes used verbs in Tamil, like he says, it's sort about ego, if sort, it takes flight. He, he's using sort there, not in the sense of we're looking for something but we but we but we've lost. It's um we 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 are, we are seeking it in in the sense that we are trying to, we are seeking to know the reality of it. We are seeking to hold on to that in order to, to know what it actually is. So it's not, it's not like we're looking for something that has been lost or we have forgotten. It's ever shining. But we, because we though we are aware that we are, we are not clearly aware what we are. Why? Because now instead of being aware of ourselves as ourself alone, as I am I, we're aware of ourselves as I am Michael, I am um, um, uh, Marty, I am uh, Dan, Who, whoever. We, we, we are identifying ourselves as a certain person. This person is is a bundle of five sheaths, a body, life, mind, intellect, and will. That's what makes up this person. This person is not what we actually are, but we mistake ourselves to be this person. So long as we mistake ourselves to be this person or any other person, we're not aware of ourselves as we actually are. So in order to, so ego is just that false awareness. I am this body, I am this person. So, in order to know ourselves as we actually are, we need to cease attending to the body or mind or anything other than ourselves. We need to attend to ourselves alone. When we attend to ourselves alone, everything else drops off because this body is not holding on to us. This mind is not holding on to us. We are holding on to them and saying, I am this body, I am this mind. So but if instead of holding on to this body and mind or anything else in the world, everything, the whole world is a part of our mind. So attending to anything is attending to, to the to the objective aspect of the mind. Mind has two aspects. It's got the all thoughts other than I are objects. But The only thought that is the subject, the only thought that is aware of all other thoughts is the first thought I. That is ego. That is what we need to hold on to. By holding on to that fundamental awareness I, everything else will drop off. Because when we're holding on to I, we're not holding on to anything else. So they drop off. And when everything drops off and we're aware of ourselves in our pure condition, as just I, not anything other than I, that is the state in which ego is annihilated, because we're then aware of ourselves as pure awareness, awareness that is not aware of anything other than itself. That is what we actually are. So uh, it, we shouldn't think of of this as we are looking for something that we've lost, because something we've lost is obviously something other than ourselves. What we are to attend to when we investigate ourselves is to ourselves alone. So. We, We are not looking for something that we didn't know. As Bhagavan said, if jnana were a new knowledge, if if, if attaining jnana meant gaining some knowledge that we didn't have before, we would lose it because whatever comes has to go. Jnana is not a new knowledge. but We are always aware I am, that I am is jnana. The problem is, instead of being aware of ourselves as just I am, we're aware of ourselves as I am this body, I am this person. So we just need to know ourselves without these adjuncts as just I am. Um, so it, when we know ourselves as we actually are, we are not knowing anything new. <clears throat> it's not, we are not gaining any knowledge. We are losing all knowledge about everything other than ourselves. And when all knowledge about everything other than ourselves is lost, what remains is the fundamental knowledge, the pure awareness, I am. So um, it's it's important we think about very carefully about Bhagavan's teachings. Why? Because only to the extent to which we understand his teachings clearly, will we be able to put them into practice correctly. If I think that. Self-inquiry means I'm I'm trying to remember something I've forgotten or trying to find something but hunt for something that I don't know. Then I'm looking for something other than myself. That is not self-investigation. Self-investigation, self-inquiry is attending to myself alone. What is what we are not seeking to know anything that we do not know already. We are seeking to know only ourselves. And we always know ourselves. There's never a moment when we are not aware I am. So, it's, as I say, it's important to think about these things in order to under, to the extent to which we understand Bhagavan's teachings correctly, we will understand the practice correctly. Michael? So, uh, yes, yeah, can I just say one thing before you ask? Sure. People often say, oh, I'm not interested in the theory, I'm just interested in the practice. In Bhagavan's teaching, there's no theory and practice. All of Bhagavan's teachings are practical. They all have practical implications. So if we understand his teachings correctly, then we will understand the practice. We cannot understand the practice without having a a clear and comprehensive understanding of his teachings.
3: Michael, I have appreciated Every time you talk on this topic, it goes deeper and deeper, and I feel like there's a little like a snail going along a path. Yeah. I'm starting to understand that more clearly. Um, you just said we need to tend to ourselves alone. Yes. I completely agree with that. That's yes. Raman's, one of his primary teachings. Yeah, maybe 15 minutes ago, there's a bit of an inconsistency, at least as I see it. <clears throat> and you can clarify it for me, if you will. Uh, when you were talking to Ben about 15 minutes ago, you brought up the subject of prayers that you like, several, and you, 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 you revealed one, which I think is absolutely beautiful. Yes. Uh, the prayer that I'm going to start using immediately as a prayer to self, um, melt me as love, as you in the form of love. Yes. That's beautiful. But I've always thought of prayers, maybe this is my Catholic upbringing, as reaching outside of self to as if somebody out there could help me with a favor or an answer that I'm seeking. The path of non duality especially of self inquiry has pulled me completely away from that <coughs> yet when i still hear references to prayers by definition they cause you to step outside of self looking for a response can you help me on that a little yes, bit
2: yes the, well the key to understanding this the answer to your question is akshramai itself if we if we st- if we read very Lai means 108 verses. If we read them very carefully, they are purely non-dualistic prayer. For example, in the very first verse, Bhagavan says, Arunachala, you eradicate ego of those who think of of you. Well, it, it can be interpreted in several ways. One way of interpreting it is who, who think of you, as I, in other words, you eradicate the egos of those who who are self attentive. That is one uh, implica- implied meaning in that verse. The word "but" means I also means the heart or mind, so it can also be interpreted: you root out the egos of those who think Arunachala in the heart. But thinking Arunachala in the heart means. Ar- Arunacha has to be in the heart in order for us to think of it in the heart. And what is Arunacha? Arunacha is that which is shiny in the heart as I. So we are not praying to something other than ourself. Yes, when we look outside, we are aware of ourself as a form. So Arunacha seems to be the form of a hill. But what is it that is manifest in the form of that hill? It is our own self, our own real nature. So it, in in um, many many of the verses of Aksharamlay, they can be <coughs> they, they can be understood or interpreted at different levels. Superficially, we can take it as a prayer to an external god in the form of a hill, but there's a deeper implication in all in most of the verses. But He Bhagawan is praying to His own soul. Take the second verse, for example. If you have any doubt about the, the non-duality of Akshara like the second prayer should remove all doubts. What he says in the second prayer, he uses two words, Arahu and Sundaram. Those happen to be the names of his mother and his father. His mother's name, Arahu, is a Tamil word. His father's name, Sundaram, is a, Tamil, is a Sanskrit word. But the meaning of both words is exactly the same. They both mean beauty. So he says, like Arahu and Sundaram, implying just like these two words, though they are different in form, they are one in meaning. So the substance, the import of the words is exactly the same. Though the, the sound of the word is different, the spelling of the word is different, but the what the words are referring to is exactly the same. So like Aruhu and Sundaram, which the meaning of Aruhu and Sundaram, they, they, are, they, they are identical. They, are, they, they can never be separated because they both mean beauty. So like Arahu and Sundaram, may you and I be completely non-different. So, just like Arahu and Sundram are non different in their, in their essence, we and Arahu, and that verse can be taken, it can be interpreted as a prayer. May you and I be completely non different. It can also be interpreted as a statement, a declaration. Like Arahu and Sundram, I and you are completely non different. So, Akshram Lai is, is an Advaitic prayer. We are praying to our own self. Having risen as ego, we seemingly have separated ourselves from the reality that we actually are. So we are praying to our own reality, which is ever shiny in our heart as I, to absorb us back into itself. So though it's, there's a, a thin veneer of duality, otherness, on the surface, Underlying that it is pure non-dual love. It is Bhagavan. Bhagavan and Arunacha are completely non-different, as he says in that verse. Then who is praying to whom? Bhagavan is taking the part of a, of, of a, the jiva who is praying for its merging back in Brahman. Jiva brahmaikya Brahman and Jiva are always one, but so long as we rise as ego, as jiva, we are seemingly separate. So we are praying to, to the, the iceberg is never separate from the ocean. But what is the ocean? The ocean is water. Iceberg is exactly the same water. In substance, they are exactly the same. It's only in the form that there's a seeming difference. So and what is that substance? That is pure love. So Arunacha, like ice in water, melt me as love, in you the form of love. This is pure, non-dual prayer. And who is the Arunachra that is, is, we are praying to? That which is shining in our heart as I. In so many verses in Akshram and in other, the other four hymns, Bhagavan is referring, explicitly says, Arunacha, this great hill that is always shining in the heart. So is he referring to the external form or to the great mass of jnana but he's shining in our heart as I? We can take it in both senses. Uh, the more superficial sense, he's referring to the hill. But and you summarize it. There, there's no doubt Bhagavan's love for that hill, we cannot doubt. Bhagavan had great love for that hill because he, he recognized that that hill is his own self seen out, manifest outwardly in the form of God and Guru as this hill.
3: And you just summarized it in a way that's very helpful to me, because it's a hang-up word for me. Yes. I try to avoid it. I try not to pray, meaning outside of myself. Yes. In fact, I don't anymore. Yes. But you just described it as pure, non-dual prayer, which says it all. And if I got it right, and tell me if I'm off here yeah it seems to come to me as that to whom you direct your prayer is self yeah meaning that the phantom ted who looks for guidance the phantom ted yes. the the mind body uh, illusory being ted is asking the i am for guidance but the I am is not outside of self.
2: The I am is self. No, 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 no. that. Oh, okay. is, is not Where quite correct. Not quite correct, because it is not Ted who is praying. It is ego who, but is praying. Ego is that which is now aware of itself as I am Ted. Ego. Ted, 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 isn't the same. Ted is Jada. That which is aware. Ted has no awareness. Ted knows nothing. It is ego that knows itself as I am Ted. That ego is nothing but that pure I am mixed and conflated with the adjunct Ted. So the, the, the ego is sentient. Ted is not sentient. Ego is aware. Ted is not aware. So it is ego praying to, to its own essence, its own heart. That is, what is the ego is the is the, I junk mixed awareness, I am Ted. What is the heart of that awareness? I am. That I am is the heart. That is Arunachala. In one verse in Arunachala, Ashtakam, Bhagavan begins by singing, porul, uh, arivoli, ar, 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 arivoli That means, there is only one thing, you, the heart, the, or, or only one substance, that you, the heart, the light of awareness. So Bhagavan is saying actually is the heart, it is the light of awareness. What does the heart mean? It means I am. Because ego is the mixed awareness, I am Ted. What is the, what is the heart of that mixed awareness? It is only I am. So it is that. That I'm mixed awareness, I am Ted, ego, is praying to its own heart, its own essence, its own reality, I am.
3: So it's, why would ego pray to destroy itself? I understand that this is really
2: helpful. Because, because ego e, ego will pray to destroy itself only when it recognizes but it is but it is a false entity. What is the reality of ego is only I am. I am is indestructible. We, you can never destroy I am. All you can destroy is the, is the adjunct, which is, or, or you can separate that I am from the adjunct. When the adjunct drops off, it ceases to exist. And w- without adjunct, what remains is the pure awareness I am.
3: Well, that's the key then to me because Ego was always something I thought was just taboo, and it's the force that drives me to distraction, to uh, addiction to life, let's say, or to desire. Yes. Uh, And and it doesn't serve me in a way I now see is in my best interest. And you just described it as ego recognizes the value of praying to self when it recognizes. It is a false identity. I didn't know ego had that capacity to recognize itself as false.
2: Yes, it does. I mean, at, at, least, at least we cannot fully... Un- when we really recognize ourselves as false, we'll cease to be ego. But at least as ego, we can understand... Now, now, if you think about it uh, carefully, now you, your, your present experience of yourself is I am Ted. It, it's, such a, it's such a solid experience. Where are you? You're sitting there. You're in a particular place. You're not outside this body. You're inside this body. Your, your whole awareness, your whole existence seems to be confined within the limits of that body, Ted. So it's such a such a solid experience and it's the base of all your experience of other things. So it it seems to be so real that you are Ted. But if we think about it, how can you be Ted? You're aware of yourself in sleep without being aware of Ted. Even when you're dreaming, you're aware of yourself, but without being aware of this body that you are now. This body that you are now is then supposedly, uh, we, or so we are led to believe, uh, lying asleep in a bed. But we are aware of ourselves as if we're walking around or running or doing so many things. So the body we take to be ourselves in a dream is different to the body we take ourselves to be in waking. Since we are aware of ourselves as that body in dream, and when, at that time we're not at all aware of this body, this body cannot be what we actually are. So, though it seems so real to us now, but I am this body, if we think about it, this this cannot be correct. I cannot be this body. And when I'm asleep, I'm not aware of anybody at all. I'm not aware of the mind. I'm not aware of um, the intellect. I'm not aware of the will. I'm not aware of anything. I'm aware only of I am. So, since I'm aware... Nothing other than I am in sleep. I cannot be anything other than I am. I am I, as Bhagavan said. So when at least on the we, we can use our intellect to discriminate and understand, but our present awareness of ourself is a false awareness. And therefore we since this is a false awareness, what is real awareness of ourself? We can begin to seek that within ourselves.
3: This has been very useful. I'm, uh, I hesitated bringing it up before because I've brought it up other times about the, prayer. It, yeah. it just I've conditioned myself to think of it as a turn-off. Yeah. But this conversation has led me to deeper understandings. Yeah. Is it right if I... I don't. I don't know how I'm going to use this, but I, you know, we all have our different way of trying to get from A to B.
2: Yeah.
3: Spiritual pursuit of something that's already here, ourself, our self, yeah. our I am. If I want to turn to prayer, quote unquote, um, I used to say self to self. I'm struggling. I need guidance. Mm-hmm. Meaning the mind body Ted ego self to the I am. Yes. Yeah. Now it seems to make better sense to simply incorporate that prayer which you said earlier that was so useful, I think, to any of us who heard it. And the prayer would go, perhaps, ego to I am, melt me as love, as you in the form of love. Isn't that what ego
2: is asking for? Yes, exactly. Okay. Exactly. And another thing is, you say you, you, you've been avoiding prayer you haven't yes. been avoiding prayer. Haven't you been trying to surrender yourself? Haven't you been trying to investigate yourself?
3: Yeah, I don't see that as prayer, but yes. That is,
2: that is prayer. Prayer oh. prayer can be expressed in words, as Bhagavan, for example, has expressed so many prayers in words in like. But, but prayer is not mere words. Prayer is the... Is, is, is the is the longing in our own heart, the longing for happiness, the longing for peace, the longing for um, the love that is driving us on this path, that is prayer. One, some, in Mahashi's gospel, uh, it's recorded, but someone asked Bhagavan, Bhagavan, if I, if I, pray, if I surrender, then is prayer not necessary? Bhagavan said, surrender itself is a mighty prayer. In fact, surrender is the greatest prayer of all. I like that. Because we, what are we praying for? We're praying for the annihilation of ego. Our prayer is, it can be genuine only if we're ready to give our ego to him, surrender this ego to him. And self-investigation, when we turn our attention within We are driven by love. That love that drives us to turn our attention within is itself a prayer. Prayer is nothing but the longing of our heart, the deep inner longing for the happiness from which we have separated ourselves by rising as ego. So our whole life is a prayer. Even the most worldly people, they are praying. They're seeking happiness here and there. They, 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 that they have a love for happiness that is driving all their actions. Even the greatest sinners, the most evil people, they, they are all praying, but they're just praying in the wrong way. They're seeking <coughs> happiness outside themselves. We have, having come to Bhagavan, we've at least begun to understand, oh, happiness isn't outside. Happiness is within. So we are seeking happiness within ourselves but the same love that is driving the saint is also driving the sinner all and seeking only happiness and that love for happiness that is prayer that is love for our own self because we are self for happiness <laughs> thank you <laughs> so so people who think oh bhagavan is a is a is a pure waiting He's not not for all this uh, prayer and bhakti and everything. Read Arunachas Duty Panchakam, then you can only you can understand what real prayer is. And how how prayer and Advaita are inseparable. So long as we rise as ego, we cannot but pray. We are all yearning for happiness. Our yearning for happiness is prayer. But we are directing that yearning outwards. We need to direct it back within. That directing of our, of our our of our yearning back within that is the mature prayer, where we're seeking happiness where happiness actually lies in the depth of our own heart as ourselves.
4: Um, I have a question. Yes. Um, I, I have a situation that I really don't like mm. uh, because just there's a club near my house and I hear it all night long so I can't sleep. <laughs> and in those moments, it's like, should I try to change it outside or go within and sometimes it helps because I have to go within because, uh, you yeah. know, when you're so annoyed and, and you can't do anything about it, yeah. then yeah. there's no other way. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's my question.
2: We can't change the world. We, we, the world isn't going to change for our sake. We have to change. So it's our attitude we've got to change. The world troubles us only because of our likes and dislikes. Supposing we had no likes and dislikes at all, nothing would trouble us. Even if we we, um, we, uh, become terminally ill or are having some disease that is causing us tremendous pain, if we've got no dislike for that, it won't affect us. So all our problems, all our suffering is caused by our own likes and dislikes. That's why Bhagavan says in the 19th paragraph of Nana, who are, likes and dislikes are both to be disliked, both fit to be disliked. Likes and dislikes are the cause of all our problems. And for whom are those likes and dislikes? Whose likes and dislikes are they? Their egos. So the root problem is ego. If we want to be free, so long as we rise as ego, we will inevitably, to a greater or lesser extent, have likes and dislikes. So if we want to be completely free of likes and dislikes, if we want to surrender our will completely to Bhagavan, we have to surrender ourselves to Bhagavan. Because only when we have surrendered ourselves have we truly and completely surrendered our will to him.
1: Yes, and it yes. is worth
2: remembering when things, some, we all, embodied existence is, is a series of problems. We, there's no embodied being who is perfectly happy, perfectly content, perfectly satisfied. Embodied, the, the body itself is a big burden we're carrying. So the, life will throw so many problems at us, but whatever problems are thrown at us, They are all Bhagavan's will, because everything we experience in this life is prarabdha. Prarabdha is the fruit of our past actions that have been selected by Bhagavan for us to experience in this lifetime. He has selected those fruit that will be most conducive to our spiritual development. So Bhagavan often used to say, whether you call it prarabdha or God's will, it's the same thing. So our prarabdha, whatever we are given to experience, it is all his will. So that, that loud music that is disturbing you at night, accept it as his sweet will. And it won't trouble you. But it's, not, it's easy to say that. It's not always so easy to do it. So surrendering words is very easy. Surrender in practice is, uh, it requires great, great love, great, great willingness to give up all our own likes and dislikes and to accept whatever he wills. Knowing that yes. whatever he wills, he wills it for us because it is what is best for us.
4: Yes. So to even like learn to love it. Yes, yes. <laughs>
2: Bhagav- Bhagavan, Bhagavan ends the um, the, um and the second verse of Arunachapatikam, Ninishtam Enishtam, your will is my will. Yeah. Imbedaku, that is happiness for me. Uh, uh, Enui Ireye, O Lord of my soul, or Lord of my life. So he's addressing Arunacha, the Lord of his soul, because Arunacha is the I am, the soul is the false awareness, I am so and so. In that false awareness, the, the Lord is that which is shiny as I. So he addresses Zarinachala, your will is my will. That itself is happiness for me.
4: Because even if it's only things that we like that happen, it's still yeah. not happiness.
2: It's still not happiness because we, we always want something more. We, happiness means satisfaction. Infinite satisfaction, infinite happiness is our real nature. As ego, we can never, as, as, as ego, we are experiencing ourselves as a finite creature. So, as a finite creature, how can we experience infinite happiness, infinite satisfaction? So, as ego, we will always be dissatisfied. That's why Bhagavan says the very rising of ego is dukkha, is dissatisfaction or suffering. So, we can find satisfaction only in ourselves. Only by losing ourselves in ourself can we find true satisfaction, the infinite satisfaction that is our own real nature.
4: And sometimes I have this idea like, but nothing happens here. Like when you're really at peace or really turned within, there's no entertainment.
2: <laughs> no, but because our mind has a taste for for. What is visatia? That is what is special. We want something different, something different. Variety is the spice of life, as they say. So we're constantly seeking something new, something new. Because when we rise as ego, we limit ourselves. And so we feel a deficiency in ourselves. Since we seem to be deficient in ourselves, we are seeking to fill up that deficiency. To uh, get uh, to to, we're seeking the, the, the we we seek outside ourselves to to uh, to, um, to compensate for the deficiency, but we feel within ourselves. But actually, there is no deficiency in ourselves. If we look deep within, we will find we are the infinite ocean of perfect satisfaction. We seem to be. Uh, lacking something only because we're looking outwards. And we're looking outwards because we seem to be lacking something. So it's a vicious circle. So we, we need to wean our mind off its taste in going outwards. It's liking to go outwards. It's liking to go outwards is what is called vishaya vasanas. Vishayas means objects or phenomena. Vasanas means inclinations. So our inclination to seek happiness in anything other than ourselves is a vishaya vasana. That is is the big problem we're up against. That is why we're so reluctant to turn back within, because we've got so much, such strong inclination to seek happiness outside. But the more we practice turning within and holding on to that self-attentiveness, we are thereby strengthening the sat vasana, the inclination just to be as we actually are, to seek happiness in our own being and not anywhere else. And we are consequently weakening the vishaya vasanas because vasanas are strengthened to the extent to which we allow ourselves to be swayed by them. Vasanas have no strength of their own, but whatever strength they seem to have is strength that we have given them by allowing ourselves to be swayed by them. That is why the only way to wean ourselves off our bishayabhasanas is to cling to self-attentiveness. In each moment. In each moment, yes. Of course we fail. doesn't matter. Keep on trying. Bhagavan hasn't asked us to succeed. He's asked us to try. If we try, he will take care of the success. If we try, he, will, he guarantees success. But we need to try. Because if we don't try, that means we're, all our talk of love for him and um, surrender and everything, it's all humbug. It's all, um, it's all empty words. Yes. If we truly love him, he is always shining in our heart as I. So we will cling to him in our heart as I. We'll hold on to I. That is the true Ramana Bhakti. So to the extent we are allowing our mind to come outwards and roam about in this world, it shows the deficiency of our love for him. So if we are honest with us, we, with ourselves, we, we have very, very little love for him. We've got far greater love for the world than we have for him. It's sad to say, but it's true. But we can overcome that. We can, we can cultivate that love for him by following the simple path he taught us, turning within, holding on to I am. Yes.
4: And everything he sends us is, is for that.
2: For that. It's only all, con- we may not always understand it. Oh, why Bhagavan is giving me this trouble? Why, why he's put me next to this loud club that is disturbing my sleep every night? We may think like that, he has done so only for your own good. Whatever troubles he gives us, it's all for our good. Whatever pleasant things he gives us, that's also for our good. Bhagavan once said, um, the, problem with, the problem with you people, you thank God for all the good things. You forget to thank him for all the bad things. The bad things are as much his grace as the good things.
4: And the good with the good things, it's so easy to forget him.
2: Also. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's why after the Mahabharata war was over, when Krishna said to the, the Pandavas, the Panchapandavas Pandavas and their mother, uh, whatever, what did the boon you wish to pray for? Their their mother, um, um, Kunti Devi, she said. I pray only for one thing: always give us trouble. She said, "Why? What are you asking for trouble?" She, she said, "So long as everything is favorable, we forget you, but only when we're in extreme trouble do we remember you. So give us that trouble so that we should never forget you."
5: Michael? Yes. Uh, thank you.) Um... This is a, a question relating to what you're saying just exactly yes. now. Um, it would be helpful for me if we could rephrase this business about accepting his sweet will. Uh, God gives us only um, what what's good for us and all that into non-dualistic language. Um, I hear it all the time from all, all sides, and mostly from people who have no idea of non-dualism at all. If, if It would help me if I could rephrase it in non-dualistic language, the vishaya vasanas.
2: Okay. I'm not sure that it can necessarily be rephrased in non-dualistic language, but we can relate it to non-duality. That is, so long as we are looking outwards, we experience this world and we experience so many pleasures and pains and all sorts of experiences come. So long as there's experience, there's duality. We, ego, are the experiencer. Whatever, is, whatever we are experiencing is something that is happening to us. So the, when we're talking about the world, when we're talking about our life in the world as a person, we are, we are in the realm of duality. But by accepting whatever happens joyfully, we, in other words, by, by learning to be indifferent to whatever is happening, but some Christian mystics have a term, holy indifference. We need to be wholly indifferent. that is, we need to be unconcerned about whatever happens. Let good things happen, let bad things happen. It's all equal for us. We, we need to rise above these things, be unconcerned about, about these things. because only to the extent to which we are unconcerned about these things, will we be will we have sufficient love to cling to ourselves? So long as I'm worried about my, my life, about this problem, about that problem, life has so many problems. But so long as we allow our mind to dwell on these things, we, our mind is not dwelling on ourself. So let anything happen, let good happen, let bad happen, let all sorts of problems come or let them not, let them come or let them go. It's no concern of mine. Bhagavan has asked me to do one thing or one thing alone. That is to hold on to self attentiveness. Let me hold on to self attentiveness.
5: Thank you. Uh, that I, I, I get. Yes. Um, I mean, conceptually, at least uh, what I t- have trouble with is, is all this talk about it's his will for us. that's best. And he has this plan and whatever happens, he's planned. And, okay. Uh, okay. That, okay. I, I okay. sort of fog it because I, I want to think in non-dual terms. Okay.
2: Actually, Atma. Okay, he he is our own self. He is our own real nature. He is what we actually are. But when we rise as ego, now we are aware of ourselves. as, now you're aware of yourself as I am Jodi. Jodi is not God. The I am and I am Jodi is God, is Bhagavan. But so long as you're aware of yourself as I am Jodi, you've separated yourself, not not really but seemingly you've separated yourself from him by right. limiting yourself you you so so long as we rise as ego duality seems to exist that doesn't mean duality is real duality is always unreal but it there is a seeming duality so long as we rise as ego so but the the one we are referring to as he is that which is shiny in our heart as i it is our own heart. That, that is, I am is 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 shining in is the heart shiny in the heart. So it's the very center of our being. That is what we are referring to as he. So, and when, when we say it's Bhagavan's will, is, is Bhagavan sitting there and deciding each and everything, or l- l- let them have this experience, this experience, this is the fruit of that action. No how Bhagavan is, is allotting all the fruits of our past action, n- not by doing anything, but just by being as he actually is. His very being is infinite love. So by his being as he is, everything happens in the most conducive way. So though on the surface we talk as if it's duality, it's up to us to, under, to recognize the underlying non-dual implication, because when language is duality, we, we, there's no, the language of non-duality is silence. So if you want it rephrased in, 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 the, in terms of non-duality, we just have to keep quiet because non, only in silence can we actually experience non-duality. So all these words are pointers towards that. So we we have to understand. In, in sometimes the words we use are seemingly more dualistic, but we ad- have to understand the underlying non-dualistic implication in them. Because oh. w- words words can never say things perfectly. We we, oh, yeah. we we even with thought we can't we can't conceptualize it perfectly. So it's only by turning within that we can truly understand these things. And the more we turn within, the more these words will become meaningful for us. And the more the words that previously seemed to be dualistic will be able to understand the non-dualistic implication in them. Um, just one more
5: sec. Yes, yes. My, I have been sort of fogging that language and translating it in my heart and mind yes to be atma yes and um however i was even unaware of my seeming mind body life the seeming mind body life when everybody says oh it all happens for the best it's all you know I just, I just sort of fog it and say, well, I think the seeming mind-body thinks it's happening. It isn't even happening. It's not even relevant. I, don't, I just don't relate to that language.
2: Atman knows every detail of your life better than you do because it knows every detail of your life. By, by Atman, in this context, we mean our real nature, what we actually are. Our, our, our real self knows every detail of our life better than we do because it knows it all as itself, as one. We know it as so many details, but it sees the underlying reality. So we we cannot understand Bhagavan's view of all this. Without, as I was saying earlier, without losing ourselves in Bhagavan, we cannot understand his view. So, inevitably, when we are trying to understand things by the mind, there is, inevitable, there is inevitable duality there. Seeming duality, not real duality, but on the surface, there will always be duality. We need to recognize the underlying non-duality in that. We, Conceptually, we cannot grasp non duality because concepts deal only with duality. Who is conceiving? We've got, if there's a concept, there's one who's having that concept and the concept, subject and object. That's the basic duality. So if you want to be free of all duality, the only way is to turn within. And in order to turn within, You shouldn't be. You should be indifferent to everything else. So you should be ready to accept everything as His will. So we can't get away from this dualistic language. Language is, is by its very nature dualistic. But this dual, we are using this dualistic language to point to that which is beyond duality, that which underlies duality, the sole reality which is shiny in our heart as I. That is Bhagavan. That is the he whose will we are talking about. What is his will? His will is just infinite love. And by his infinite love, everything is happening in the most favorable way in order for us to merge back in him. So, trying to, to, thinking we can understand non-duality conceptually is a we are fooling ourselves. We cannot understand it. But, but concepts are useful for turning our attention back within. To, we can experience non-duality only in our own heart, not outwardly. So long as we're looking outward, we seem to be a subject and everything else seems to be objects. There's the duality there. Thought <laughs> itself is possible only in duality. In non-duality, there's no thoughts.
5: Thank you, Michael. I think my effort has been not to just to um, avoid reinforcing any.
2: Yes, yeah, of course. We need to, but but we can avoid reinforcing it most effectively by by having a deep and subtle understanding of the underlying non-dualistic implication of all these things. It's not literally that God is, is an old man up there in heaven with a long gray beard, deciding what should be the fruit of our karmas. It's not like that. <laughs> we, we may talk about it in most terms, <laughs> as if we're talking about it in most terms, but that is all just metaphorical. God is rotting okay. the fruits of our karmas, not by doing anything, by just being as he actually as, we, as he actually is. In fact, if we had been talking about uh, Nana today, but the, the paragraph we were due to talk about was paragraph 15, but I don't think we're going to talk about it today. Uh, but the meaning of it, what Bhagavan is saying in 15 is that everything happens by the mere being, by the mere presence of God. God is not doing anything. God has no, has <laughs> no will in the sense of any desire or anything. His will is infinite love. And the nature of love is just being, not doing. But by by his infinite love, everything is happening to, as it's meant to happen.
0: Michael, I just wanted to ask if you had finished all of the questions on the original. No, I,
2: I haven't. I've, I've just finished the first one, There are quite a few more. So I'm. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter. We we we've got all the time, in, well, we've got as much time as Bhagavad is giving us. If we if we don't finish, if we don't get to talk about Nana today, we can talk about it next time, or if not next time, then the next time. So we're not in any hurry. So if I've answered all the immediate questions, then I can go back to um, this this question you had, asked, but but you received by email. Because it's actually, it's a useful question because it's very much touching on the, the heart of Bhagavan's teaching, which is the practice of self-investigation, the practice of self-attentiveness. So um, does anyone have any further questions or should I continue answering? I just have them?
6: one question. Uh, yes, yes. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, all of us have uh, <clears throat> some kind of a, a concept of self-inquiry. Yes, and uh, I think it has been actually intellectualized a lot, and plus also we have a lot of uh, preconceived uh, notions and ideas, right? Yes. So yes. assume that yeah, uh, assume that you have to you you have to give instructions to a uh, to a six year old person, okay, yes. to a child yes. about how to practice. I mean, uh, about how to practice uh, self inquiry Yes. How will you? how will you explain uh, this uh, practice, okay? Assume that that uh, six-year-old, okay, doesn't have an idea of ego or duality or all the intellectual concepts, okay? And um, so how would you kind of simplify the whole instruction of uh, self inquiry uh, to that person, like, uh, and then make that person, I mean, and then... Uh, help them, okay, practice?
2: Okay, I'll tell you a small story. There was a lady called Akalam Dayam Amaya. She was from a village about 50 miles away from Tiruvannamalai called Deso. She was from a very poor family. And um, in those days, they used to have child marriages. So she was married as a child and her husband passed away when they were perhaps not even teenager so she was a child widow so she she never married and because she was from a very poor family she she wasn't educated or anything but she came to know about bhagavan so she whenever she could save up a little money she would come to tiruvannamalai to feed bhagavan and she would usually be accompanied by a another person from her village who was a, a poor Muslim weaver. His name was Mustan. He was a very, very great devotee of Bhagavan. You've probably heard about Mustan. So Mustan and Akalam Damaya, in the early days, they used to come together. Later, another sadhu called Shankarananda joined them. And um, so they, they were all based in Desor, which is their native village, but they would come to Tiruvannamalai. She had great love for Bhagavan, but she had no idea about his teachings or anything like that. But she used to notice that people were, that that learned people were coming and would ask Bhagavan all sorts of questions. Bhagavan would give all sorts of answers. She really didn't understand any of it. One day, I think it was a full moon day. Someone told her, today is full moon. It's a very auspicious day. Uh, why don't you ask Bhagavan for some instruction? So she approached Bhagavan and said, Bhagavan, you say so many things to so many people. Um, they're all very learned people. I don't know any of this. Can you, can you give me some teaching that will be useful for me? Bhagavan simply said, uh, um, be without leaving yourself. Many years later, Akalanda Maya told this story to Sadhuam when Sadhuam was, uh, was recording her reminiscences. And she said she didn't, she didn't fully understand what Bhagavan meant, but those words have always been with her. They've always been a consolation to her. And she feels those words were working in her heart in a way that she didn't understand. So, Bhagavan's words have his own, uh, have their own power. And if we think of it, what he said to her—those three words, "Unne" means you, vidamal, without leaving, "Iru be be without leaving yourself." That is the whole of Bhagavan's teachings. There's nothing. Uh, uh, all the rest, all the rest of Bhagavan's teachings all of Arunachas Tutipanchakum, Napadu, Upadesundiya, Nana. It is just a commentary on those three basic words, be without leaving yourself. So Bhagavan's teachings can be expressed extremely simply. And in order to understand Bhagavan, we don't need to be educated. We don't need to understand philosophy or anything because Bhagavan's teachings are actually so simple. What is the one thing we all know very clearly? I am. Now we are experiencing that I am mixed and conflated with a set of adjuncts. So you're aware of yourself as I am Bish. I'm aware of myself as I am Michael. These are adjuncts. What is real is only I am. So we are all clearly aware I am. Hold on to that I am. Attend to that I am. Be that I am. That is what the teachings are. It doesn't matter whether someone is educated or uneducated, whether they're six years old or 60 years old. Some people will understand this. Some people will not understand. It is nothing to do with age or education or anything. It is is all to do with our spiritual maturity. If we have the maturity to grasp it, we will understand what Bhagawan is talking about. If we don't have the maturity to grasp it, we will misunderstand it. Even some very learned people came to Bhagavan, but they misunderstood him. They didn't, they were unable to grasp what he was saying because their minds were, were too outward going. So one six-year-old may be able to grasp this, another may not. It, it's entirely up, depends on it's not. Got nothing to do with their age. It's to do with their spiritual maturity.
6: Thank you, Michael. Yes. I mean, yeah. Yes. So the the funny thing is that I'm from uh, Tamil Nadu, so I yes. I talk in uh, Tamil. Yeah. But then I mean, I do. I mean, I have. I think I I think in uh, one of the books I have read this one. But then the challenge is that we kind of expect or at least I kind of expect uh, something uh, more profound or more complicated but then if you are uh, presenting with something so simple our uh, intellect is not okay able to accept that I mean or or comprehend fully because I am uh, thinking of I mean I'm actually expecting something way more profound and uh, Uh, Way more complex and uh, way more intellectual, right? When uh, presented with uh, something, I mean, uh, like it uh, feels as if it is uh, coming from a simpleton, yeah, not somebody who's uh, intellectually advanced, or I mean, or who's kind of advanced in their thinking, you know?
2: Yeah, but there's one fallacy in the way you're thinking, that is they complex, we, we, we sometimes think if something is very co- complex or it must be very profound, if we listen to some, some lecture on some obscure aspects of philosophy, if we listen to certain um, academic philosophers, they, they seem to be talking something so complex and so obscure, we can't grasp what it is. It seems to be very profound. Generally, the complex things are actually very superficial. The simple things are the more profound things. Bhagavan's teachings are extremely simple, but at the same time, extremely profound. But in order to recognize their profundity, their depth, we need to think very deeply about them. Though, though they're very simple on the surface, they are extreme, and they are very simple, they are, they are extremely deep. Whereas people who've got elaborate, complex philosophies, they're often just, they they, they are lost in complexity. Clarity lies in simplicity, not in complexity. If you you have a clear understanding of something, you will be able to explain it in a very simple manner. So simplicity is the hallmark of, of clarity and in clarity lies depth. So Bhagavan's teaching, we shouldn't be be deceived by the simplicity. What he said to Akalanda Maya is extremely simple. Be without leaving yourself. But that is actually extremely deep. If we think about the meaning of that, that takes us right back to the core of our being, to the heart. How can we be without leaving ourselves? if we think deeply about the meaning of those words, that itself will bring about a subsidence of our mind, because we can't think about it deeply without trying. To, in order to understand what those words mean, we have to look. We have to hold on to ourselves. We have to be without leaving ourselves. Without putting the words into practice, we can't understand what they mean, what their real depth, the depth of their meaning. And if we try to put it into practice, the mind will subside in the depth of the heart so let us not let us not be fooled by thinking, but complex things are profound. True profundity lies in simplicity because the truth ultimately what is the truth ba advaium that is the fundamental. Principle of Advaita philosophy there is one only without a second. What can be simpler than one? And what is that one? Tattvamasi, you are that. So, Advaita, if understood correctly, is extremely simple. If you listen to the lectures on Advaita, they go into so many obscure ideas and so many, it becomes so complicated because they haven't understood a dvaita. One who has really understood Advaita, they will talk very, very simply. Because what can be simpler than one? Not two means one. So one only without a second. What can be simpler than that? But what can be deeper than that?
1: Michael,
0: I came across something the other night in the book, Conscious Immortality. Yes. Which kind of has a real interesting history on how it even got written. Yeah. But I'd like to read just one paragraph. It's on chapter five, the meaning of philosophy. And I'm not sure if I understand the true meaning of this. Yes. It goes, do not tell this path to all. Only the few who manifest an anxiety to know the truth and an eagerness to find it should be told with all others, be silent and keep it secret. So does this mean we're not supposed to talk about Ramana or, you know, Um, uh, I mean, like in an advertising sense or looking for people to join our meetings or.
2: We should follow Bhagavan's example. Bhagavan's life exemplifies what is said there. Bhagavan, of his own accord, never gave any teachings to anyone. If you come and live with Bhagavan, if you never ask him any questions, he's not going to tell you anything. It, whatever, answer, whatever teachings he has given is in an answer to questions that people have asked. Because from Bhagavan's point of view, no, he, Bhagavan is jnana itself. In the view of jnana, there is no agnana. So Bhagavan doesn't see any problem. It's only when we come to him with problems, he will answer our questions. So Bhagavan, of his own accord, doesn't say anything to anyone. This is why so many people fail to understand Bhagavan. They say, oh, Bhagavan approved this, Bhagavan approved that. Because Bhagavan kept quiet most of the time, Bhagavan didn't express his opinion unless he was asked for it. (laughs) And even then, often when he was asked for his opinion, he said, Who cares for your opinion or my opinion? But before this, when the shortly before the Second World War broke out, there was some discussion among devotees what was happening in Europe. And um, some people were saying it's the dawn of a new age, a new era is coming. And others say, oh, it's about dark times ahead. Europe is about to go down in war and Everyone was expressing their opinion. And they finally someone turned to Bhagavan and said, Ask Bhagavan, what is your opinion? Is this the beginning of a bright new future or are dark times ahead? Bhagavan said, one supreme Parameshwara Shakti, one supreme ruling power is driving all things. Who cares for your opinion or my opinion? that itself is selfish his opinion so so people bhagavan we shouldn't think bhagavan is easy to understand there are many people who, are, who have been many years with bhagavan i i when when i was in when i first came to Tiruvannamalai, it was in the mid 1960s so there were still so many old devotees people who had lived there for a long time with bhagavan i would sometimes hear a story from one old devotee When I would ask another devotee about it, they would say it quite differently. And I'd say, say, but I heard it was different. Oh, no, 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 it wasn't like that. It was like this. Each had their own firm, they're each firmly convinced that their view of that, of that incident is the correct view, because each one is viewing it through their own colored glasses. So everyone had their own view about Bhagavan. But very few really understood Bhagavan. Only those who surrender themselves completely to Bhagavan, who erase their own ego, then only can we truly understand Bhagavan. So, Bhagavan, as I say, he never gave any teachings of his own accord. If people come and ask us about Bhagavan's teachings, no wrong in talking about it, but we shouldn't go out in the street and be trying to. We we, we are not we are not um, Ramana missionaries. We are not here to spread his teachings. It's useless. Those who, those who are ready for his teachings will automatically be brought to them. We need not advertise anything. We need not proselytize. Or um, if people come and ask us about his teaching, we can share whatever we have understood. Is that a satisfactory answer?
0: Yes, it totally is. It's like, it, but it, it kind of uh, opens the door for uh, something I know I am severely guilty of, and that's thinking, in my estimation, you need to know something, so I should tell you. Yes. Which, uh <laughs> It's kind of laughable when
2: you
0: think yes. about it. Yes. <laughs> no, I, I don't have any more questions. The, the, uh, more,
2: the more we understand Bhagavan, the less we will be inclined to go outwards at, uh, to Talabas. If others ask us, it's very nice to talk about Bhagavan teaching, we're always happy, to, but there's no use in talking about his teaching to those who are not interested, those who are not ready to grasp it. And we don't have to worry about who is ready to grasp it or not. If someone is ready to grasp it, they will automatically be brought to his path. It will ha- that, that is the nature of grace. Grace will automatically bring us when we are ready.
0: That's been demonstrated here in this group, too, when, you know, when we tell our different stories on how we came here to meet Bhagavan. It's like most of the circumstances on the outside seem totally co- coincidental. And yet, here we are. Uh, so, yeah, well, we we only have a few minutes left here. Uh, would you like to go into some of those uh, questions that weren't answered in that email? Or? Yes, yes. Well, I'm not going to be else. able
2: to answer it because there's actually quite a lot here, but could be answered. But, um, the next sentence was, "He, meaning Ramasami Pai, also mentions that we should question ourselves as to where was I in deep sleep." And then uh, she asked, "Is it the same inquiry as who am I?" Any questioning is manana. Manana means thinking about Bhagavan's teachings, thinking deeply about Bhagavan's teachings. So, yes, it is good to think about sleep. It is good to think about this eye that is now dancing around as I am Michael. Where was this I in sleep? It wasn't there at all. Yet I was there. So we 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 what Bhagavan taught us about sleep is very, very deep. So we should think deeply about it. But merely thinking about it is not. The self-investigation. It is manana. Self-investigation is nidityasana, that's the deep contemplation on what the teachings are pointing at. So we start there's sravana, which is when we're when we're reading Bhagavan's teachings or hearing Bhagavan's teachings. Manana is when we think about it deeply and we try to assimilate it and understand it and understand the connection between what he said here and what he said there and what he means when he said that and what is the implication of it we need to think deeply about it the manana then leads to the practice so if we think deeply about the question where was i in sleep or what was i in sleep that will automatically lead us to self-attentiveness self-attentiveness is what is meant by the investigation, who am I? It's not asking questions. It is investigating to see who am I? So we, uh, the manana is very necessary. And if we do manana correctly, it will seamlessly lead to nidityasana. But we shouldn't take... The manana in itself is not the nidityasana. It's not the investigation. It's not the inquiry. It is, it is preparing the ground for inquiry. It is leading us towards inquiry. It is pushing us back within. But only going back within is the actual inquiry. Um, so I've answered that. I will try to answer the rest of the question I, because she wrote it to me also. I've got a copy of it. She said, I also sometimes feel I don't always have to ask who am I uh, or to whom does this happen? In words, yes. But asking these questions is not self-investigation. But one didn't say "ask who am I" or "ask to whom." He said "investigate who am I" or "investigate to whom." Um, investigate to whom means so many things appear to us. To whom do all these things appear? That is turning our attention back towards ourselves. So investigating to whom means turning our attention towards ourselves. Turning our attention towards ourselves leads seamlessly to hold you on to self-attentiveness. That is investigating who am I. Um, and then she goes on to say self-attention just happens sometimes when I'm in the middle of a thought or a perception. It's like when I'm lost in thought and I just remember that I'm lost in thought. Or when I look at something, for example, a tree, I don't really look at it or imagine someone looking at it from this side. It's just the quality of looking or what looks that I attend to. Is that self-attention? Um, attending to what looks is uh, is self-attention. Looking is not self-attention because look or looking at anything other than ourselves is not self-attention. So. When, for example, we are lost in thought, suddenly we remember, oh, I, I'm thinking so many unnecessary thoughts. Who is thinking all these thoughts? To whom are all these thoughts appearing? We turn our attention back to ourselves. So sometimes from noticing that we've, we're lost in thought can remind us to turn our attention back to ourselves. But self-attention means attending to ourselves alone, not attending to anything else. So it, it's not the quality of looking at other things. It is looking at what is looking. In other words, attending to the one who is attending. Being self-attentive, that is self-investigation. So I I think that's all I've got time for. I could have answered this in more detail, but anyway. um, Well, perfect timing. this, This one set of questions has has kept us going because it, it it spawned many other very useful questions. So uh, all this is, um, as Bhagavan said, one supreme power is driving all these things. So Everything is happening as it's meant to happen. So the <laughs> questions that come and the answers that come, it's all being directed by him. <laughs> Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Well, oh, Thank you, Arana you very Bhairaya. much, Michael, for joining us. Om <laughs> Tatsat. <laughs>
0: always happy to have you
2: here. Well, I'm always I'm happy, happy to be, be here. here. Thank, thank you for your questions because the questions, if if the questions weren't useful, the answers wouldn't be useful. So, well, the other part
0: to this is, you know, we're looking at God as a long hair or the long bearded, long gray bearded man, and here yeah. we have one with the uh, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. That, behind. That, that, that shows that conception of God is completely false. <laughs> Unfortunately, growing a long gray beard doesn't make one God. <laughs> we, if we want to be God, we need to leave this body and turn back within.
3: <laughs> Michael, you always brush it off and say it's, it's all Ramana to whom all is... Uh... <coughs> it is, it
2: is. It is. What, what have I been saying today? If there's anything useful in what I've been saying, it's because I'm pointing out what Bhagavan has said. Okay, I'm not saying anything vessel. of my own.
3: <laughs> you're the vessel, and we're appreciative for you taking valuable time out of your weekend every month to be with us.
2: Well, what a gift. This is what this is what Bhagavan has given us time for, for dwelling on his teaching. So it's a gift for me to be able to, to come and um talk with you because we're all we're all fellow devotees Ramakrishna Paramahamsa used to say if two drunkards meet each other they're very very happy likewise when two devotees meet each other they're very happy so we're what do we we're talking about the love of our life Bhagavan and his teachings so it's it's a joy for all it's as much a joy for me as it is for you Well, thank you again, and we will see you all next week. Okay, right. No more Ramanaya.